Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 121, Cattle in Four in a Game of Thrones. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Yes, 121. Four of them. I am riding this cat high. I <laughs> love it. I, I I do, not to be biased, but I just think these are really fun chapters. They've been really short, uh, really, you know, just punctuated, but like full of so much information and some fun stuff to speculate on and compare to later things in the book. I'm excited for another chapter with Cat. Yeah, the chapters are really just unfolding the entire world. I don't know. It, it, they're all, as you said, strong chapters so far. And I mean, every cat chapter is a banger. Yes. Every cat has its day, is what you're saying. Mm, no, <laughs> I don't think no, that's I don't, I don't. I think it's the other aminal. But well, yes. we do have a little bit of an altered schedule happening this April. It's not. It's not going to be like wild, all right. But moms are taking one week off. The week uh, where you would get an episode four thirty, April thirtieth. You will not get an episode that week, but we will be bringing you Catalan 4 here, 4-2, April 2nd. You're probably hearing this public. Catalan 5 will be on the 9th of April, and Catalan 6 will be on April 16th with our LaBelle Sauvage Book of Dust, His Dark Materials episode being on April 23rd, and that will again be April 30th. We're taking just a, just a quick breather. Yeah, Girls Gone Canon is going on a spring break. We <laughs> are heading over to the Summer Isles. And you know, I would even say something actually fateful. Not. Something fateful might happen at a crossroads, you know, and maybe some secret weddings. We don't know. We just don't know. Very, very possible, you know. So we are going on spring break. And I mean, okay, so because this is on April 2nd, please know this is not an April Fool's joke. We are legitimately taking that last week of April off. Yeah. That's real. And That's real life. We will come back on May 7th, right? We'll be back on May 7th with more Catalan because she has at least nine lives. <sighs> Just kidding. She's so dead right now. She's it's got so like two. Sad. She's got two. <laughs> uh, she's got maybe one left. One one life to mm-hmm. live. The Catalan soap opera. Absolutely. But, you know, even though, though we are taking that last week off, we are not skimping on our Patreon episode for April. For patrons, the stranger tier and above, and that is $5 and up, we will have a His Dark Materials episode, bonus episode, about the episode that was not a bonus episode. Yeah, there is an episode that was the missing episode from Series 2. I'm so excited. It was a bottle episode that was supposed to follow Lord Asriel from His Dark Materials during some off-screen events. A little bit of uh, playing around with canon. You guys uh, might might fear that hearing that from some hbo you know fans in the crowd but don't worry it's good it sounds like it's all good disregarding of canon in my opinion so i'm excited they redistributed a lot of the ideas of this episode through the rest of the series uh, and just cut this episode out due to covid the ultimate villain but we are going to go into what we know what we know existed what we know was shot there's been a lot of great interviews in the his dark materials community from other podcasts and uh from mm-hmm. magazines and different journalists that have gotten some great interviews and just different quotes that help inform us i'm excited to talk about it with you 
Yeah, we are going to piece it all together the same way that Lyra and Will are piecing things together in their world and trying to figure it all out. That's us now. We will have an episode next month for patrons in May. So again, if you're listening to this, it is likely April 2nd, public release. So we will have an A Song of Ice and Fire themed patron episode coming out in May. Like we said, patrons in that stranger tier and above, they get a special themed episode and You know, we've got a lot of friends over in our Discord that have come and started hanging out there. They have been talking a lot about some of the old episodes, like the mentorship episode has been a uh, highlight of the chat this week. So I I love seeing the return to it. I can't say that I remember a lot of the things from it, but it sounds like (laughs) they're they're all like, wow, what an interesting thing. And I'm like, that is interesting. That is interesting. I don't know it. (laughs) They, They could have said it was theirs, honestly. They're, they're real smart. They really could have. And it wouldn't have been like, oh my god, that's so great. That's so smart. Well, if you want to be some of our beautiful, smart patrons. <laughs> just take credit for ideas up. and we will Please. believe you. We will believe they're yours. We're really gullible. Well, if you're in the $10 and above tier, our Thunder tier and above, you do have access to Discord. If you have not obtained an invitation or if your invitation expired by chance and you're checking it out, please hit us a message. We'll get you a new link. We do a brunch every month. It's been a blast, too. Again, we have a really great time. Uh, Discord has a voice chat feature. We all get in there and we've been playing Jackbox games and other shenanigans. There's a lot of laughter. And uh, legally, I cannot tell you yes or no, but there might even be a giveaway of something cool like art from the fandom. There might, in fact, be. But, you know, gotta come to find out. Yep, yep. Come to brunch and happy hour. Come sip with us, come hang out with us, and if you want to access some of those perks, like our previous catalog of Patreon special episodes, there is a back catalog and Discord and brunch and hangout, you can get that at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Patreon.com slash girlsgone, C-A-N-O-N. Yes. And of course, if you want more Girls Gone Canon stuff, I finally fulfilled a, a big dream of mine something that was on my bucket list actually this legitimately was <laughs> i made it onto radio westeros so you can go check it out i'm sure a lot of you have already listened to a lot of what we've said about Arya and martel but again those were years ago you might have forgotten what we've said because we probably have and i'm hoping you did so <laughs> you can go check that out i might have new ideas i might not <laughs> um over on their youtube You've got to check that live stream out. I think it'll come out later in audio format as well. But the live stream, Aliana was doing some slaying. She was very beautiful. She's always very beautiful, if I may say. But uh, and talented and smart. But right now it's beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> you <laughs> called me the youngest. Trait. You called me the fucking youngest beautiful queen on Twitter. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> it was really funny. I was like, I'm being made fun of. <laughs> I'm so. <laughs> Um, I'm older than Littlefinger. Yeah, you're older than that. me too. I just wanted you to remember that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why I was like, that's why I was like, interesting, Chloe. <laughs> interesting. Mm. Mm. Even mm. pawns can have their own will. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh my god. <sighs> yeah. So check it out. You also said some really brilliant things, by the way, about Dorne. Uh, okay. I, I did really appreciate a lot of your take on Ariane's relationship with Dorne. I know that you and I, I wouldn't say came to to spear blows over it, but we did not see eye to eye on what Aryan's fate might be. Your your mm-hmm. view is a little more optimistic than mine. Mine is uh, everything burns everywhere and everyone dies. 
all the time. It's not always just Ariane. Sometimes it's every character. I'm just like, they die. Everything goes up in flames. For me, um, I'm like, everything burns around the area. And then she has to watch and be like, fuck, what have I done? That's my take. Well, you made me yearn in this conversation with Yoke Boy and Lady Gwyn for Ariane to survive. You did a great job. So I was impressed. I, I think it would be fun. And and I also um, tried to explain Chloe's theory and then mischaracterized it. Yeah? I tried to explain that it was that she got Oberyn's plan and then I got flustered and then didn't explain the part where yep. Doran just figures it out on its own. <sighs> I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I was like, the title of the essay that I wrote is called No One Told. Yeah. Just so you know. Well, yep. we are going to bypass our emails and tweets of note this week because... Listen, these are short, sweet chapters, but we're going to get into some really juicy stuff and we're getting some great emails from you all on uh, just how Catelyn views the world and how she approaches things. And I'm very excited to talk about that some more this week. So next week, we'll come back to a few emails from you all. Yeah, so that helps us just jump right into our lightning round of what we missed in between Catelyn 3, A Game of Thrones, and Catelyn 4. We're going to start off with Sansa 1. Sansa has a magical day with her Prince Charming, but the veneer cracks when they come upon Arya and the Butcher's Boy. Eddard 3. Arya and Joffrey recant their version of events to the king, and Sansa plays yeah, the neutral card. Unfortunately, every dog has its day, and Lady has hers and must suffer in place of the oh, royal God. children. Oh god. Bran 3. Bran dreams that he's falling, but then he learns to fly. Hey, you win some, you lose some in House Stark this episode. <laughs> That's true. That brings us to Catelyn 4, where the stakes are ever high. The magic turns to politics as Cat enters King's Landing, having a secret meeting with both Peter and Varys before discovering the owner, question mark, question mark, <laughs> question mark, of the dagger. I don't know. The wand chooses the wizard, I guess. Yes. And so that brings us to Catelyn for Game of Thrones. The Storm Dancer ship is about an hour away from King's Landing. No more are we there yet. And somehow, interestingly, we get to King's Landing through Catelyn's chapters first and not the other POVs that were actually headed there, as we saw in the lightning round. Um, and left, obviously, Winterfell earlier. So again, it sets Cat up to be our exposition perspective. Yes, I love that. And I really love that she is later on, she sneaked into King's Landing, right? Like Ned comes through the doors, broad daylight, normal, whatever. He's like, all right, I'm tired. Let's get in there. Let's go do some work. Catelyn is snuck in. I think that's really interesting. Mm. She is. Catelyn tells Captain Moreo she'll be tipping each of his oarsmen with a silver stag. In this, we get more of Catelyn's, you know, no bullshit attitude, right? She cuts through Mario's flattery. It's very consistent with the Catelyn that we were introduced to in Catelyn 2, who had no time for modesty in front of Maester Lewin when she felt that her family was in danger. And despite being trained in courtesy, we see that Cat is actually quite immune to very blatant flattery, right? Which makes her a great counterpart to Ned, but also a great foil to the two characters that we're going to be meeting later in this chapter. We get a great amount of backstory on Moreo. Like you said, this is a camera into the world. He had been sailing for 30 years, and first he was an oarman, then a quartermaster, and now a captain. The Storm Dancer, his fourth and fastest ship, was a two-masted galley with 60 oars, and the fastest of ships available in White Harbor. 
Roderick argued they should hire a fishing sloop at the Three Sisters, be more low-key, but Catelyn was like, no, I'm not having that. And she's very grateful now that she pushed for this galley, because the winds are really bad and the fishing sloop would have taken twice the time. Now that I think about it, not only twice the time, but would they have really made it out if they did that at Sisters? They might have just crashed no. right back in. Now I that agree. we know. Now that we know. Shit. But, you Holy know, shit. like, she would be there, she'd be eating, she'd be eating good. You know, that's there's actually a lot of connection to Davos's chapters in this chapter. Uh, I know we, you know, moved over to Catelyn from Davos, but this is a big part of it, right? Because the last time we were in White Harbor with Davos at the end of A Dance with Dragons, a Dabada, respectfully, we saw Storm Dancer. We even hear from one of the oarsmen when the whole Aegon Danny debacle comes out. His fellow drinkers were talking about dragons now. You're bloody mad, said an oarman off of Storm Dancer. The Beggar King's been dead for years. I-, I thought that was so interesting that we do see Storm Dancer. We don't necessarily see Moreo that we know of, but we see Storm Dancer in the harbor at White Harbor. Yeah, it is. It is. And it really goes to show their success as a as a ship. They're a pretty, pretty good ship and also helps tie these books together, right? It's a way that George is really smart and just detailed about his world building. Yeah, it's crazy to think this came first, right? Like, that this chapter happened before. Like, these details are very well woven. I think a lot of these chapters are very purposeful in Aegot, right? Like, they're just very, like, they have their purpose. Sometimes they don't give you so much illumination to their answers. Sometimes it's very, like, plot, 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 event. Mm -hmm. We're moving forward. Here's the big explosion. And it's obvious that George is gardening, kind of, like, he Mm -hmm. lets it grow a little more in the next book and give us it a little more air to breathe even uh all of these characters feel looser in the next book and more relatable and i i think it's a really interesting progression that then he goes all the way back with davos to bring some of these details and some of these other ships back uh, we even see a swan ship right a white swan ship that's supposed to be kind of a pleasure ship mm. just a lot of stuff that comes up throughout the story that has repeating imagery and i also think this imagery is important because We're going to talk a lot about Catelyn's relationship with her daughters, of course, with Arya and Sansa as we go along. And as she travels through White Harbor, I know there's been a lot of theorizing, especially since Fire and Blood came out, that Sansa would go maybe travel through White Harbor. Uh, In A Dream of Spring, we might see her enter the north through White Harbor. It would be an Mm -hmm. interesting way to enter unless she goes with her knights by land. So some interesting vibes coming from Catelyn here. Yeah, and as you see, it would be a uh, it'd be quite fast considering how quickly Catelyn did this. Like literally two chapters, right? There's mm-hmm. none of the travel travel log. Um, we're in King's Landing now, and as we're entering, her fingers throb beneath her bandages, and the last two fingers on her left hand refuse to bend because, as you'll all remember, there's a very bloody encounter the previous chapter. The other fingers would never be dexterous again, but Bran is still alive, and that's what mattered to her. And you know, this is another another thing, right? Those details. And the, those hands are going to come back, but it, her hands here are serving as this, like, really great reminder to the stakes of, you know, Catelyn's trip and what's going on here with this plot. Sir Roderick comes to the deck to chat with Morio. 
who speaks through his green forked beard. So we get uh, that Tairoshi sort of character world building. And the winds in the bite and the roughness of the narrow sea were definitely not for Sir Roderick, who had almost gone overboard at one point, passing Dragonstone. He had clung to a rope until Morio's men rescued him and put him below deck. And also, Roderick looks a little different now. Right, he's shaved his great white whiskers on the trip because he just kept puking into them back when they were at the bite. And and Cat marvels at how different he looks. Smaller, less fierce, and also ten years older. I really like the use of whiskers on men in the story. Just the way George uses them as, you know, like symbols of strength and weakness. And here, of course, Cat is marveling that he looks smaller, but still older. Usually when you remove the whiskers, men look younger, right? Like, I know my partner looks 80 years younger. It's very insane. Benjamin Button on this shit. But here she sees Roderick's age and it kind of also shows this respect that she has for him, right? That she's kind of, I mean, even the way she's treating him while she's here, he's lived in Winterfell longer than she has. He's served the Starks longer than she has. And he treats her with utmost respect as a leader of the house, right? Uh, Just as Ned has trusted her. And her treatment of both Roderick and the men on the ship here feels significant in that. She's giving them a lot of respect and... Oh, Roderick. He's so lovable. Um, (laughs) He is. And the thing that you're saying about whiskers and beards, actually George does revisit the same device with Pycelle later, right? How Pycelle seems sort of diminished without his beard. Pycelle's beard seemed pretty cool, though. Like, there's a lot of words devoted to Pycelle's beard. And... I don't know. I feel bad for Roderick. I can't believe that he shaved it just because he, like, kept puking into it. Like, that's how bad it was, and that was his only solution. And you were talking about the relationship that Kat has with Roderick and the people on the boat, and I do love the courtesy that she extends Roderick, despite how embarrassing the situation is for him. He sort of apologizes, right, that he hasn't been very good. And it's a trait that we see in Sansa right because she's very good at complimenting people and she does it for example with Lancel right despite his injuries after the Blackwater she has this gift of making people feel comfortable and and strong and that's what Catelyn's sort of doing here with Roderick yeah we're gonna see a lot more of that as we go through this chapter right and I think there are a couple other call outs for both Arya and Sansa on that that they are very much influenced by Catelyn mm-hmm. Moreo leaves them to discuss their business and Roderick sheepishly apologizes for not being the best of protectors, as you said. Catelyn's happy, though. She's like, I'm glad we're here safely. Don't worry about it. Now's the hard part, though, so buckle up, Roderick. Reaching the Master at Arms, Aaron Santigar, that is the next part, and hoping he will give them the truth that they seek. I thought it was interesting, right, that the Master at Arms at the Red Keep is Dornish, Aaron Santigar, Considering how things went between the Martells and the Lannisters right at the end of Robert's Rebellion. And especially that Santigar is one of the houses that does seem quite close to House Martell. I wonder if maybe, like, on one hand, could it be that they're trying to do this sort of appeasing, like, rebuilding their relationship with the Dornish? But also I wonder if maybe Aaron, while he was alive, was perhaps reporting back to Doran Martell and informing on the royals. Yeah, and we don't really know, right, uh... That's interesting, especially because later Cersei threatens, right, to bring someone from Dorne to be the master at arms to teach Tommen how to fight. Mm. When we started with one. Uh, but, like, oh, we're returning back to what we were doing. They're good at fucking and fighting. Oh, Cersei. 
but it's interesting. We don't actually know how long he's been there, but we it seems that it's implied he's been in service to them for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Probably something yeah. that, like you were mentioning, probably with Dorne's involvement also could have been like a, a healing of Dorne kind of thing. Like, hopefully this will abide for some of the things and, well, we gotta give someone from Dorne because otherwise they think we're gonna kill the rest of their kids. Uh, and I also wonder if he would have been close with Lewid and if this would have been someone Robert, you know, kept on oh. after the rebellion. I'm wondering if maybe he was there at the same time because there was a lot of Dorn going on in court in the Outer Rings. Yeah, that's definitely possible too, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I think he still wouldn't have been pleased with how everything went down, so. I mean, George wanted to get rid of him, so. <laughs> yeah, even George was like, I'm not pleased with Aaron Santagar. <laughs> Fuck this Aaron Santagar guy. <sighs> Roderick thinks that Aaron is vain, but honest, and warns that they are at risk when they land ashore. Says that, you know, many people at court would probably know Catelyn on sight. Littlefinger, she murmurs, and thinks of the boy that she once knew. His father had died a few years past, so now Littlefinger has been bumped up to Lord Baelish, but everyone just still calls him Littlefinger. Uh, it's hard to shake off some names. <laughs> Roderick tries to say something polite <laughs> about Peter, but fails, which is a total mood. And then Kat gives us a brief history on Petire, which uh, Chloe has put here to pay uh, respects right to other alternate pronunciations. And I will say, <laughs> because inclusivity. again, inclusivity, yes. Yours, you say Moreo, I say Morio, Peter, Petire. And because again, Kat is past delicacy. As the book says she is. She's straight to business here when it comes to Roderick being like, what do I say about Littlefinger? And also, you know, how else are we going to get the exposition on Peter <laughs> if she doesn't tell us right now? I love it. The The first instinct she has when he's like, we're at risk when we get here. People will know you is, fuck, Peter Baelish. So her first gut says that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. He was my father's ward. We grew up together in River Run. I thought of him as a brother, but his feelings for me were more than brotherly. When it was announced I was to wed Brandon Stark, Peter challenged for the right to my hand. It was madness. Brandon was twenty, Peter scarcely fifteen. I had to beg Brandon to spare Peter's life. He led him off with a scar. Afterward, my father sent him away. I have not seen him since. She lifted her face to the spray as if the brisk wind could blow the memories away. He wrote to me at River Run after Brandon was killed, but I burned the letter unread. By then I knew that Ned would marry me in his brother's place. Sir Roderick's fingers fumbled once again for non-existent whiskers. Littlefinger sits on the small counter now. I knew he would rise high, Catelyn said. He was always clever, even as a boy. But it is one thing to be clever and another to be wise. I wonder what the years have done to him. Well, we are about to find out. Not to be a rhetorical bitch here, Kat, but we are gonna find out, unfortunately. (sighs) Unfortunately, indeed. Yeah, they've not been good to him. (laughs) You know, the years have done... You can't improve garbage. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Garbage does only smell, get worse over time. I mean, you can dress it up, put a gold trash bag in your bin, but 
lots of ideas. End of the day, it's still a trash bag. You know what I'm saying? End of the day, I it's still a trash do bag. I know what you're saying. Well, something that I think I personally could have misread, I guess it, this could be another reading of it. Roderick leads into this, right? And he says, Lord Baelish once... Uh, and his thought trailed off uncertainly in search of the polite word. I personally took this as, as you said, uh, he tries to say something polite, you know, like say something nice. No. But is this a reference to Baelish spreading around to everyone that he took Kat's virginity? I don't know. I think that's interesting. Go on. Because Catalin says that she's past delicacy. Right. And, you know, when a proper girl says she's past delicacy, she's about to read the riot act, which is kind of what this could be read as is that here's the real story. I know what people are saying about Peter and I. This is the truth. I don't know what you've heard, but this is all what the truth is. Here's here's my truth. Catelyn Stark. So it almost makes me wonder if because he kind of starts, he just falters, right? He's like, uh, Lord Baelish once. And he's like, I don't want to be improper with you as my leash. I don't know. I found that really interesting. I thought that could be another way to read this after rereading the chapter and also rereading Eddard's next chapter, since we get a good amount of Baelish in it and a good amount of the cross with Catelyn and just kind of how things were read. I do think there's something interesting flipped in it that this is the same perspective that Catelyn has on him is actually how Liza introduces us to her view on him, right? She says, My father said he was too lowborn, but I knew how he'd rise. John gave him the customs for Goldtown to please me, but when he increased the incomes tenfold, my husband saw how clever he was and gave him other appointments, even brought him to King's Landing to be a master of coin. Hmm. They immediately, both of them, always saw the potential in Littlefinger. Yeah, I think that's a great connection, absolutely. And what you were saying is, earlier about whether or not I I b- would believe that Sir Roderick had heard the rumors because Littlefinger just loved telling people about it but obviously as we know Catelyn hadn't heard that story mm-hmm. and also she didn't sleep with him so she'd be like why the fuck would he say that but yes yeah, so I think I think that's an interesting thought that he might have been going towards that as opposed to the, you know, just him being like faltering and also so we could get an info dump and yeah, <laughs> yeah but yeah, I, I and also that both Liza and Catelyn recognize how clever he is. Yeah, I think there it could be possible, especially because of that display of intimacy as, you know, like master at arms and lady of the house that they already are displaying of like she and Roderick have taken this journey together He's, he's not just like someone else that works at the house that she doesn't talk to. Like, he's seeing it all right now. They're on a journey together on a boat, cramped up together. They Life are. <laughs> right. Like, they're Life just. They know each other's comings and goings. Uh, so the intimacy of that is interesting that, like, maybe he would feel comfortable enough, or obviously not comfortable enough, because he doesn't say whatever he was going to say and she cuts him off. But it is interesting to me, and I'm sure that there are rumors, and I'm sure that she does, as we hear, like, she literally says to him, Peter wanted me. Bad. Like, that's all there is to talk about, Roderick. He wanted me, I said no, the end. I think it's an interesting translation. And she does think that's all there is to talk about. 
Yeah. It is it is scandalous, but it's like honestly not the most scandalous thing that I think has happened yeah. in Westeros. Well, you know how the time There's a whole is. war. There's a whole war. And also yeah. Ned's thing is way more scandalous. Yeah, that's true. With, and like John, uh, I mean that is some secret scandalous, you know, some passions, days of our lifestyle drama, some telenovela. I would be very into that. Actually, I want to like see the everyday of it, you know, all the tensions rising. <sighs> Absolutely. There's something else notable going on in that, that the end of Ned's next chapter, once more instigating Littlefinger and Varys are playing between both of them. He speaks to Kat, yada yada. They're seeking the truth. He's doing his detective spy work. Chapter four for Ned ends in. All justice flows from the king, he told her. When I know the truth, I must go to Robert. And pray that he is the man I think he is, he finished silently, and not the man I fear he has become. Both of these people are dealing with the same exact problem about two different people that they grew up with, and they know that they are not good people. And they know better, but they want to believe that they're still the people they thought they were in their heart. God, they're so close. If they could have just said it out loud to each other, their fears. Anyways, neither of these men are the men that Catelyn and Ned think they grew into. And it kind of plays out as this like redux of what Kat just went through in Winterfell without Littlefinger, like trying to trace these steps, figure out a game plan, getting all these men to swear to her they're going to chase after this thing, and then getting to King's Landing, and now Ned has to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that's such a great comparison between uh, Robert and Littlefinger Raiden and Ned and Catelyn both finding out that neither of them are the men that they think they are or should be. And it's not that like neither of them have grown into certain men, right? It's that neither of them have grown at all. There's mm-hmm. both Littlefinger and Robert are stuck in the past. And... Speaking of that past, I, I do want to bring back, I think, I don't know if I brought this up in the Sansa chapters back then, maybe in the Ned ones, that we get that mention of the scar that Peter Baelish got from his his scuffle with Brandon, how he almost died. And I do think uh, we are going to see that scar one day. And it's probably going to be really like uncomfortable, but I do think that the day we see that scar is probably her- heralding close to the end of Peter Baelish. I mean... Just want to say two things. What if the scar's not even real and it was just like a bar story he told people? No, I'm just kidding. And second of all, what if he shows up and he's like, well, I don't know how I got these scars. Oh my god, that would be the worst. He'd be even worse than he already is, but... <laughs> it's been, you know, speaking of, speaking of the things that make him like shitty, right? I, I love this distinction that Catelyn draws between cleverness and wisdom when yeah. she's describing Peter, and I mean, we find out he is still clever, he's still not quite wise, and I think for many of these players, right, it seems as though they are more interested, like, the players of the Game of Thrones are more interested in being clever than necessarily wise, and, or maybe, like, they are somehow blinded by how clever they are, and cannot see wisdom. So they all got that chip on their shoulder. The yeah that's that's the thing exactly like the difference between being clever and wisdom like being clever can get you a couple meals and sometimes it amounts to a bunch of clever things that add up and you end up the treasurer of a failing company i guess and you're just like reaping your chaotic rewards but it's not sustainable 
living off of other people like that too. <laughs> and they got like a, and I think because they recognize that they're clever. Again, they have that chip yeah. on their shoulder, and mm-hmm. they want other people to recognize how clever they are. And that's part of how they're able to rise so high. I guess is you know maybe that's part of what Catelyn and Liza saw in Littlefinger a desire to be recognized. Whereas the wise thing to do, if Peter were wise. He would have moved the fuck on. <laughs> that's that's I, I mean this legitimately. That is the wise thing to do. Let her go. I mean, also like you're just gonna take your business and yourself straight in the ground and your whole house name. Like the you're on a downward spiral, man. Anyway, yeah, not nah, it doesn't look great for Littlefinger in the end, which is awesome. But here he feels pretty fucking happy with himself, doesn't he? <sighs> Captain Moreo gives orders atop the Storm Dancer, and King's Landing slides into view. Some beautiful world building here. 300 years ago, there was nothing but forest and fisher folk at the Blackwater Rush, but Aegon sailed from Dragonstone, landed his army, and built his first wooden earthen crude. Now the shore is covered in manses and arbors and granaries, brick storehouses, timbered inns, graveyards, lanterns, brothels taverns, brothels. Catelyn could even hear the fish market at the distance in the calling. And I think that's so sweet. It just reminds me of Arya. You know, their plots are so connected with the water and with being near the water. I just think it's a a great connection. This is kind of another way that Catelyn and Arya, as you were saying, right, are like in in their practicality. Uh, Because again, despite the way that everyone, as we see in this chapter, they're all like really concerned that like Catelyn's a lady and they're stepping on eggshells around her, making sure that like what they're doing is right. Catelyn is concerned with getting shit done, which is why she has no trouble sailing into this harbor. She has no trouble with like, you know, being around all the people or whatever or staying at a tavern. Yeah, she has a certain familiarity around water and Arya kind of returns to it. I love it. I love to see that grow, and I'm excited to kind of see some more of these comparisons as we go along Catalan's chapter and as Arya breaks out alongside her into the, the wild. But here is where Catalan flourishes. Absolutely, right? Like, she's a little rusty, but this is this was her place, the South. Visenya's hill is crowned by the Great Sept of Baylor with its seven crystal towers, and on Rhaenys' hill stood the collapsed ruin of the Dragon Pit, Its bronze doors closed for a century. Between them runs the Street of Sisters, and beyond, walls rise, strong and tall. The harbor's packed with ships, business, and trade, moving from Bravos, Pentos, and Lys. She can even see the Queen's ornate barge tied up beside a whaler from Ibn. Above all of it, on Aegon's Hill, was the Red Keep. Seven huge drum towers with iron ramparts, vaulted halls, covered bridges, barracks, dungeons, granaries, massive curtain walls, and archer nests, all fashioned in red, pale stone. Yes. Exposition, exposition, exposition. Here's a little bit more of it. Aegon had started the construction of the Red Keep, and the Maker the Cruel saw it finished. Afterwards, Maker took the heads of every person who labored on it in order to preserve the secrets of the dragon's fortress. And now we get a little bit of the current day exposition. Yet now the banners that flew from its battlements were golden, not black, and where the three-headed dragon had once breathed fire, now pranced the crowned stag of House Baratheon. What symbolism, right? This is a mummer's farce, first of all, is what they're telling us, and we actually learn it in Eddard Four. Right, we'll talk about it later, but Varys kind of is like, haha, I'm gonna put this very lightly. 
my dear hand, but the king doesn't do fuck all around here, is basically what he says. Uh, and here, the symbolism is big. The dragon once roared from this battlement, and now the crowned stag prances around. It's also really funny because obviously the banners are gold with the black stag on them. Black with the red dragon, Lannister crimson with the gold lion. But the way this is worded kind of feeds into that seed is strong language in the first book of the Lannister's colors are the gold and crimson. And here now is the gold is everywhere and the black stag is prancing around mm. playing. But the gold versus black is just so prominent in this quote, which obviously we have later on in the story, the greens versus the blacks, the reds versus the blacks. Uh, but here with the gold versus the black, it really does kind of bring you to the forefront of like blonde, yellow, Lannister, Baratheon, black, bold, seed is strong. And it kind of reminds you that like the gold being everywhere is this sparkly Lannister regime. It's not really a Baratheon regime anymore. Absolutely. And the gold, of course, you know, if if you combine their colors in a way, the gold, the golden dragons, and if you just take what's left of the colors, the black and the red. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Sounds like yeah, the previous that. regime. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Reminds me. And, you know, you think of the gold, you think of Aegon's uh, banner with the gold dragon, right? Versus Rhaenyra. Yeah, I, li I did like his dragon. I didn't like Aegon, too. I like his dragon, So, though. yes, I did like his dragon, but I think that's also fun to think about with the gold versus the black. Yeah. Uh, not as much that like 1-1, one, one, but it's just fun to like put those two roles of the Baratheons clashing with the Lannisters here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <sighs> we also have that line of, Only the blood of the dragon ever know the secrets of the fortress the dragon lords had built, he vowed. And I think that's fun because we meet Varys, and even if Varys isn't a secret Targaryen of sorts, or some sort of black fire of sorts, or dragon blood within him, uh, he at least supports the blood of the dragon, right? He supports that regime and is doing a lot, a lot of extra shit to get them back in power. Uh, he so I think that's fun. Yeah, it's Absolutely. fun because he does know all the secrets of the castle. Mm -hmm. As we yes. see in Arya's chapter, right? As we're going to see in this chapter, uh, yeah. he knows a lot of secrets. That's his, like, shtick. Yeah. Well, you were talking about this earlier, about the swan trip from the Summer Isles. It's leaving port as they pull steadily into the shore, and Roderick advises Catelyn that she shouldn't enter the castle. He says he'll bring Sarah Aaron to her instead, in a safe place. And Catelyn thinks, but Roderick, you're in just as much danger as me. But he's like, it's fine. No one can tell who I am. <laughs> I can scarcely even remember myself without whiskers. The only person who saw me without whiskers last was my mother, and she's 40 years dead. He's like, it's safe enough now. And I kind of like this because the facial hair is a disguise, rears its head again with Jamie. It actually does also with uh, Varys because he's got like a bunch of wigs and shit. But Yeah. Yeah, Jamie doesn't get away with it. Roderick doesn't either, as we find out. Roderick is <laughs> very, true. he's got one of those faces. He really does. Moreo finishes getting the men into port, and he announces to Catelyn they've arrived, asking if she needs help bringing her belongings in. She's not going in the castle, though. She asks for a suggestion for an inn. He promises to help her, but reminds her her promise of extra silver to the oarman. He attempts to take it from her. He's like, oh, they're just gonna dice it away or drink with it. And Roderick's like, there are worse things to spend your money on. Winter is coming, and Catelyn's like, they earned the silver, and how they spend it, I do not care. She pays the oarman herself, a stag to each man, 
and a copper to the men who carry her belongings to the inn up Visenya's hill that Moreo suggests. Before I'm all like, ooh, ooh, I love Kat so much, I do want to say, to be fair, she did just make 90 silver stags. She earned those 90 silver stags, though, okay? She paid for it. Her hands don't fucking move anymore, all right? Mm -hmm. No one wants that. I can tell you, it's not fun. But obviously she wanted to get rid of that money. She also was like, oh, get rid of that money. Uh, But 90 silver stags is what she took from the assassin. So spending the 60, not a big deal here. Uh, I do appreciate, though, like very much that she is making sure the Ormen get their money, that they don't get stealed from, and she does not care what it's for. It's very obvious Cat and Mad value people's time and money. It shows throughout their chapters most of the time, but also in their children's chapters. Uh, I think we talked a lot in the past and in this episode even of where we see Ned and the children at times and their values, but here... There's so much of Kat that we see in Arya and Sansa moving forward, right? Like, Sansa in the Bread Riot, she has nothing to give of her own, right? As she's kind of held hostage and has no capital. But she manipulates Joffrey to throw coins down to the people. And Arya later gives food to people all the time when they're in need and water. Uh, Water to dying men. She gives free oysters to Sam. Food to the boys on the road. She shares with Gendry and she offers it to everyone. They, They... very much so have been taught to give, you know, when they have extra or give even if they don't have extra. That's a great point. And I kind of wonder, if, to some extent, Kat is hoping that by showing this courtesy, she's buying the silence of the men on the ship. Though I guess only Moreo really knows who they are. And we do get hints of Moreo being greedy and untrustworthy already that he (laughs) might be willing to steal his men's earnings and i think that cat sidesteps that very coolly without insulting him i really love her response that it's their money to spend however they like you know catlin doesn't believe in policing how the lower classes spend their money it's theirs they earned it um i'm joking catlin is not at all like a class trader she's not about to break down she's not about to like lead a socioeconomic revolution in the least uh, but i, I like know, her she's doing good anyway. work right now she's doing some good work out there you know i mean one fray gone couple more to go she she's well maybe now now you know <laughs> but that's lady stoneheart um but so i part of me also is like you know because you were talking about the dragon earlier in the stag it's interesting that she's paying everyone in silver stags not in dragons because mm, you know they are Baratheon. that's a faux pas that would be a faux pas wouldn't it <laughs> i mean a they're not that f- again catelyn not redistributing the wealth to everyone or else yes she would be giving fucking golden dragons to everyone <laughs> now they're silver stags because also you know they are baratheon loyalist and there is this line about how men must make their choices that she says in regards to how the men can spend their money fucking however and it feels very pointed considering how her <laughs> husband left uh the previous chapter when catelyn was like no you can't go to king's Landing anymore it doesn't make sense and that he left choosing right despite saying that he had no other choice or thinking he has no <laughs> choice and the many other ways that th- that sort of manifests in this story yeah that's that's a really good I didn't think about that. I didn't see it as petty, but now I'm like, mm, yeah, good point. I don't see Men it can as do petty. Whatever the fuck they want. It's That's not petty, true. but it's a subtweet. You know what I mean? It's like, a, <laughs> hmm, enjoy spending your money wherever you want. She says, then tweeting a screenshot of their joint bank account, their checking account. You oh know, God. she's out there like, interesting. How's the forty dollars you spent at the bar? Eddard with Robert, <laughs> the tag at seven p.m. 
That's true. But also, that's probably like, oh my god, I didn't want to be out of here at all. <laughs> I mean, just holding him accountable, reminding him. That's like this. probably throwing throwing the drinks into the pan <laughs> in the side, like, oh god. I did that once when I was younger. Oh, really? A friend and I, we had a crazy party weekend. We were 17. We drank triple sack. Mm. Okay, it wasn't a big deal. Triple sack. Not not a real liquor. Uh, a liqueur. So we we got drunk on triple sack and like it was I don't remember what we made it was nasty but I just remember she got Sounds very like- drunk and we were in her basement so I was pouring her drinks out of the basement window because she was too drunk she was That's and amazing. I was just like and she would come out of the bathroom and be like you poured my drink out didn't you and I'd be like fuck <sighs> oh oh you I was the Ned. You yeah. pour- oh I thought Ned was throwing out his own drinks because I was gonna be like I you know I'm clever but I'm not wise I would have just kept pounding the drinks back and next thing you know i'm hungover and vomiting no ned's out there throwing out robert's drink is what i'm trying to tell you he's like robert's not looking time to pour out half his beer so he doesn't get his drunk right and he's replacing it with like water or something (laughs) or or like lighter ale because i don't know potability but after the third they all go down the same (sighs) the inn is an old place in eel alley that they are staying in it's owned by a crone with a sour face. Hey, settle down, Paddle, and that could be you soon. Who oh, bit shit. the coin that she was given. I love that. She bites her coin. Which, again, comes back to the Arya chapters. Yes, absolutely. The old crone with a sour face who bites her coin. And it does feel very underworldy in that aspect. That's really, yeah. Whew, Arya everywhere! It made no matter. The rooms at the inn on Eel Alley were large. Moreo swears on her fish stew as well, which I would love to try. And best of all, the woman doesn't care who they are. Roderick warns she should stay away from the common areas of the inn, and he dons his dark cloak, ring mail, and dagger, vowing to be back by nightfall with Sir Aaron Santigar. And Kellen has no problem falling asleep in her bed, though it's straw-stuffed and not feather-stuffed. She's very tired, but also can't be that picky. She wakes up to someone pounding on the door, demanding to open it in the name of the king, and she wraps herself in her cloak, grabbing the dagger from the bedside, and unlatches the door to find gold cloaks of the city watch, who smile at her dagger. They tell her, there is no need. We are here to escort you to the castle. And she asks, by whose authority? And they reveal a ribbon with a waxy gray mockingbird seal. It's Peter. Hooray. It's... A well-set-up chapter in general, though. You know, we introduce some of that backstory in Littlefinger, right? And then he shows up here, but obviously it all goes together. (laughs) She thinks something must have happened to Roderick immediately, and she's like... And she asks these men if they know who she is. But they don't. She's still safe in that aspect. They don't, though. But they do know Littlefinger sent for her to be delivered to him unharmed. She commands them to wait outside while she dresses and redresses her wounds. She struggles to lace up her bodice, throwing a drab cloak around her shoulders. Were they too late? Had the Lannisters reached King's Landing before her? No. No, if that were true, Ned would be here too, and surely he would have come to her. How? But then she understands. She thinks, Moreo, the Tyro she sold her out. She hopes he received a good price for her. Yeah, kind of like that uh, brand stuff earlier, but yep. to be honest, despite what I said about Morio earlier being a little shady, I'm unsure if he actually did sell Catelyn out or not, but if he did, I wonder if it's like maybe he and Varys have like a mutual connection, right? Like a middleman or something through folks that they all know from the free cities. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking that too because it is a free cities connection. It does feel significant. And, you know, coming back to Davos later, hearing many different tidings from some of the sailors from this boat in A Dance of Dragons, he learns a lot, right? Like, he learns a bunch more that no one knew. Davos gets a lot of information in the North, which is interesting to me. And in The Vale, uh, he learns Robat Glover was there trying to raise an army. Lord Manderly was not returning his pleas, so propaganda, we know he was. White Harbor is weary of war, and the Riswells and Dustins are uh, surprised by the Iron Men, and they have their long ships destroyed, and the Bastard of Bolton is riding with Hoth or Umber to attack Moat Kalin. You know, that he got all this big news that he never would have gotten had he not stopped there into. That's so funny that he is at the Lazy Eel, and this inn is on... Eel, it's the eel Lane in. or whatever. The Eel Inn. Eel Inn or something like that. Yeah. yeah. How funny. Um, but yeah, he gets all this news. And then we eat eels later. The lampreys. They're technically eels. And we say we're eating yes. lamprey pie. That's true. I love it. I love it. it it's interesting because Davos gets all this news from the Tyroshi sailors or from the sailors from the ship. Mm. And I think that could be a great connection like that. They have the Varys connection. The Free mm-hmm. Cities. Absolutely. A lot of them, you know, as as we find out as the books progress, have some connections with one another. Not all of them, but... Well, you know, one Tyroshi knows every other Tyroshi, Eliana. <laughs> Apparently, I mean, of course, absolutely. That's how that's how it works when you're all of... Every group one of people that you've never talked to. One ethnicity. Yeah, absolutely. Female um, comics and, you know... Wow. The men had brought a horse for Catelyn to ride, and as they ride, the lamps are being lit along the street, which is actually kind of cute in imagery if you think about it. But what's not so cute is that Catelyn feels the city's eyes watch her, and they reach the Red Keep, the portcullis is down, the, the great gates are sealed, and you know, there goes the whole low-key traveling, right? Because she's like, oh shit, everyone's looking at me now that the gold cloaks are all flanking me. That's a, yeah, it, it's not low-key. You have a whole party <laughs> bringing you in the side door now. An and entourage. <laughs> I love that the city's eyes are watching her when we open up with her being watched by the eyes of the Weirwood, right? It always feels mm. like she's being watched. The paranoia is always oh. being built for Catelyn underneath. That's interesting. Yes. And, I mean, apparently that fear is not misplaced, as we saw last chapter. Yeah. it uh, she- It's nice, though, because it's just all lit up. You know, it does remind me of, like, a little... I mean, I live in a beautiful city. I know you have some beautiful bits where you live. And I just love at night the skyline here, which unfortunately, literally on my birthday, they will be stop lighting up my favorite building that turns bright purple all night because birds are dying. Um, Uh, Birds keep going like early morning. They just like fly into it. So like, ooh, a light dead. So they're trying to save the birds, which is kind, I suppose. But like, I just love looking out at the city lights and Seeing, you know, from a good vantage point, even just seeing all the little houses and the little lights and the people going about their lives makes you feel small, but in a good way. Yeah. Catelyn is escorted through a door up endless stairs to a tower where Littlefinger sits, alone at a wooden table writing at an oil lamp. He greets her quietly, and she asks why she's been brought here in this fashion, which, same... And he dismisses the guards and notes her hands. We have this quote. Catelyn ignored the implied question. I'm not accustomed to being summoned like a serving wench, she said icily, 
As a boy, you still knew the meaning of courtesy. Did he, though? Did he, though? Did he, though? I'm just putting it out there. Was he ever less scampy? No. <laughs> uh, he's really apologetic. He's like, oh, this wasn't my intent. And he looks very contrite, which brings back some memories for Cattle. And she's like, hmm, he always looked contrite after his mischiefs. He was a small boy and grew into a small man, one or two inches shorter than Cat, with sharp features and laughing gray-green eyes, now just shy of 30. And he grew an ugly-ass beard. He could have grown any kind of he could have grown any kind of beard, right? He could have grown like some stubble, which could have been like kind of cool, but he grew like a pointy beard instead. Like he he has some silver hairs now on his hair, like and that could look distinguished, you know, if you do it right. That could look that could work for him. That could be daddy's not. I know, but he's not working any of it. He grew a pointy beard. It's all wrong on him, you know? It's like a I don't know. I remember as a kid, my mom bought me all the limited two clothing in the world. And like when I wanted Hollister and Abercrombie to try to fit in, she was like, okay, well, I'll try to save some money up and we can buy a shirt or we can go look at the thrift Mm -hmm. store and see if they have anything that has the logo on it. And like, no matter what I wore, I was never going to fit in with those kids, man. I was never gonna, you know, and I remember that so hard. And Littlefinger is like... He's wearing the Lacoste, like the, the, he's wearing the polos and he's popping the collar and he's got the hat on and he's like, I'm so cool. And it's like, if you haven't gotten cool at age 28, little finger, it might not happen for you. I'm very you worried to tell trying. you that. He's just just don't try. Trying. Just be yourself. Oh, fuck. Don't. Never mind. He is trying to be himself now. You he's got to wise up is uh, what it is. Not be clever. Oh my god, be wise. There's a line here, even as a child, he had always loved his silver, which... That's some Judas betrayal imagery, if I've ever heard it. Thirty pieces of silver was the price Judas betrayed Jesus Mm. for, right from the Gospel of Matthew. Last chapter, we also had that line about Bran's death not being bought for cheap, uh, and Catelyn says it again of herself, Earlier on, I hope that Morio paid a good price for me. She said the same about Bran was paid a good price for. And here, she's being paid a good price for eventually. It's not Littlefinger's direct fault, but he sure does instigate war that leads to it, doesn't he? I mean, and he is Judas, right? He does play Judas to Ned. Yeah. He absolutely, uh, you know, seduces Ned into his trust. Yep. And all of that. Well, here he's doing similar. All he had to do was fucking move on, you know? Catelyn asks him how he knew that she was here, and he answers, Varys knows all. Varys will join us soon enough, he says, but he wanted to see her alone first. Okay, just really wanted to get that power dynamic, Littlefinger, didn't you? You really thought you were big stuff. Does this give you those two extra inches on your heels? (sighs) Catelyn ignores his familiarity. He's constantly calling her cat, and she's like, so the king's spider found me. He then is like, you shouldn't call Varys that. He's very sensitive of that name. You know, it probably comes from him being a eunuch. And I'm like, are you talking about Varys or are you talking about yourself here? Right? Like, Littlefinger is probably a nickname you don't want people to call you. So are you saying, truly saying, don't call people by mean nicknames, cat? 
Right? Absolutely. Because I'm like, it's not a flattering nickname, right? And I guess he's just sort of learned to embrace it because like you said, he's just trying to fit in and be cool. He's like, yeah, guys, that's my nickname. Ha ha ha. That's so funny. <laughs> but like, who wants to be going around like, who wants to be called like small dick all the time? Because that's what they're basically saying. Damaging. It's very right? damaging. It's hurtful. It's hurtful. It's not cool. Like nimble dick. Nimble dick is like, oh yeah, he knows how to use it. But like, Littlefinger's not a flattering name. Yeah. And like, I get it. I do get it. And he doesn't really have a flattering personality to save it either. Which, I mean, honestly, he could have just had a better personality because with, I think Aiden Gilden can he can get it. He is a handsome man, and you know what you were he saying? The it. stubble. If we just changed Littlefinger's entire personality and his facial hair, he could probably do better. And it's interesting because he's actually not described as like ugly. He, he's not described as like a disgusting man. He's just creepy. No. He's, He's just, just a fucking weird vibes. And he like, even how, this is interesting. So Catalin remembers him having laughing gray-green eyes or calls his eyes laughing gray-green eyes or green-gray. And we do have that language used for another character in the story. You'll never mm. guess how I'm going to segue this one. Uh, Ashara Dane. Ashara oh, Dane has- say Theon. No. Uh, no, that's a great one too with Theon's smile though. And, like, he's always smiling at some joke. His which smiling is kind eyes, of, yeah. Yeah, his smiling eyes. And Ashara Dane is described as laughing eyes only by a couple people. She's described as it fondly by Mira. Actually, no, once by Mira. Everybody else describes them as haunting and not laughing, which is really interesting for other implications we're not going to go into because you all know who I am as a person. You know what I'm thinking about. It's Howland and Ashara every day, every night. But here, Catalan is remembering Peter's eyes favorably. The people who remember Ashara's eyes as haunting are people who seem to have some sort of issue with her, like Cersei or uh, Ned. And Catalan even thinks of her having haunting eyes of people describing her as Oh, her haunting eyes. The people that all find her having haunting eyes feel guilty about that person or have some sort of issue with them. Peter, here, she is calling them laughing eyes instead of seeing them as, like, sinister or yeah. uh, or mocking. condescending or mocking. Yes, yeah. she sees them as laughing and she sees them kind of as a lighter thing, which I think that is a call out. Like, I think that his eyes are laughing and they don't look mocking or condescending to her. Uh, she is seeing it uh, when she puts her face up in the mist and she tries to blow the memories away. She's like, let me just make this all go fine. I can just get through it, compartmentalize through it, make it happen. And that makes sense, right? And and yeah, Laughing Eyes is like very, it's a very fond descriptor, as you said, whereas Ned mm -hmm. does feel like Littlefinger's being condescending all the time. To an extent, he's like, maybe it's in my head. And I'm like, no, Ned, that's real. Listen to your heart. <laughs> Listen to your heart. Anyway, Littlefinger goes on to say that nothing happens without Varys knowing here in King's Landing, because his informants, the little birds, know all, and one had heard of her visit. And thankfully, Varys came to visit him first, Littlefinger, and Catelyn's like, why you? <laughs> and I'm like, the plot! The plot, Catelyn! <laughs> it's happening in your chapters! <sighs> I love that he gets defensive here. He responds and he says, Why not me? I am Master of Coin, the king's own counselor. Selmy and Lord Renly rode north to meet Robert, and Lord Stannis has gone to Dragonstone, leaving only Maester Pycelle and me. 
I was the obvious choice. I was ever a friend to your sister Liza. Varys knows that. Two interesting call-outs. One, everyone left and there's literally two people left. And you are the better choice over a walking cadaver? Good job, first of all. Okay, like, good job, Peter. Pat yourself on the back a little more for nothing there. Of course it's you. Uh, Second of all, I was ever a friend to your sister Liza. Excuse me? That's a way to put it. Hmm, the plot thickens. He explains Varys does not know why she's here. And then he's like, yeah, so why are you here, lol? Uh, She's like, a wife is allowed to yearn for her husband. And if a mother needs her daughter's close, who can tell her no? He doesn't believe that, though. He's like, what word? Your annoying family words you said every weekend at the family barbecue again. He's like, ah, yes, family, duty, honor. He echoes her and says their hand left her in Winterfell, but yet she's here. It speaks of a certain urgency. Yes, and it's a great way of weaving in Kat's values once more and and those house words, which are also to an extent also shared values with Ned. And to highlight how important it is that she went on this quest. I do like that she did weave in. She's like, is a wife not allowed to yearn for her husband? Being like, remember, I'm married. Littlefinger, I have a husband that I uh, yearn for. Because you just know in the back of Littlefinger's mind, he's like, why is she here? And he's like, she didn't come here for me, though. Unless. <laughs> unless. I'm glad she like, doesn't bury the lead. She's right away like, I want to pork my husband, Peter. Why do you think I'm here, dick? I would say that is what that means, like, outside of proper lady talk. Like, she did lead with that on purpose. I mean, yeah, that happens. People will be like, oh, yes, my boyfriend, my uh, husband. I'm people. I'm people. I blame everything on my significant other. Well, Littlefinger once more tries to be Catelyn's white knight, right? He's like, let me help you, Catelyn, please. I'm begging you to let me help you. You need it. When a soft knock comes to the door. A man steps through, plump, perfumed, powdered, hairless as an egg. Varys wears a loose gown of purple silk with a golden woven vest, and he takes her hand in both of his, exclaiming how joyed he is to see her after so many years. Okay, so actually, though, I really love the opening lines for how we see Varys. I I, I think the words that are chosen are just so great and incredible. I love also the hairless as an egg, like... Who fucking comes up with that? Love it. And beyond that, though, hammering home the point again of how much of the story's exposition and setup is happening in Kat's chapters, it is through Kat's chapters that we get our first glimpse of the two people who, by books three and five, which were supposed to actually be very close to one another, but, you know, things happen, gardening, but they end up being revealed as the masterminds behind a lot of, like, why Westeros is the way it is in the current timeline in 300 AC, right? They, they've they been scheming in the background. And the plot with the Lannisters and the Aarons is actually, as we know, revealed through Kat's chapters, right? And the death of John Aaron. And it builds through her chapters as well with the dagger's owner revealed and unbeknownst to her or the reader, right? You know, who the wizards behind the curtain are, at this moment, but also been unbeknownst to us at first, is how all the evidence against the Lannisters, right? It's a lot of it is mounting actually through Kat's chapters from Liza's letter and the dagger. It's all coming together there. It comes back to a little of, you know, what our friend Alex was saying about Kat's story being a bit of a, like a almost detective noir story. But in regards to that cleverness versus wisdom, it's through Catlin's chapters, interestingly, later, right? Kat is clever. 
and she's a bit wise, right? Because we begin to humanize both of the Lannister brothers, besides, you know, their own POVs later on. But, like, a lot of it happens in Catelyn's chapters as she's like, wait, you know what Tyrion said about the dagger actually makes a lot of sense. A lot of the things that Tyrion says make sense to her. And as she releases Jamie later in Clash and hears out his confessions about, like, what actually went down in the Red Keep with Ares... You know, she she really begins to understand a little bit more and question the things that Littlefinger told her and takes a bet on Tyrion's armor. But unfortunately, you know, the, the laughing eyes and, and the memory of the boy that she knew really, it, it's a way that the emotions and our human hearts in conflict with themselves cut through any of the wisdom that any of us could have. Absolutely. And it doesn't help when after that, you just keep taking grief hit after grief hit after grief mm-hmm. hit. Maybe, you know, living your life under this society that we live in, because we live in we a live society. We live in a society! Shadowland <laughs> lives in Maybe us. it's, you know, I mean, you break after a while when you face piece of grief yeah. after piece of grief and loss and loss and win. And when the wins aren't big enough to imbalance those losses, what do you become? That's a lot of it. Yeah, the broken man stuff is just as much about Catelyn, right, preceding mm-hmm. that book. Varys immediately notices Catelyn's hand injuries, and he laments about them, offering to send for a jar of salve from Maester Pycelle, but Catelyn retracts her fingers, thanking him politely. She says Maester Lewin has seen to her hurts. Varys sends another volley. He offers his grievous sadness for Bran's injury. He says the gods are so cruel, and Catelyn's like, yes, yes they are. I wonder to what extent, if like Varys' sadness here is maybe somewhat legitimate, given his own childhood and what was taken from him when he was forcibly castrated. Yeah. Not that like any of that stopped him from cutting kids' tongues out, but anyway, I wonder if some of his sympathy here is quite real. Mm-hmm. Catelyn addresses him, though, as Lord Varys, and George gives us this line. The title was but a courtesy due him as a council member. Varys was a lord of nothing but the spiderweb, the master of none but his whisperers. It's kind of notable in this introduction to Varys that George does say here, Catelyn and Varys have met before. This is not their first meeting. They know each other, uh, which makes sense mm-hmm. because we know that she traveled with Hoster as a girl, probably throughout the South, and obviously to King's Landing. All of this in King's Landing, I mean, she speaks about it familiarly, right? Like, she knows this land, she knows where she is. So it's not her first time here, and it's not her first time meeting Varys, which I think is very interesting, because she addresses him as such. Mm-hmm. Varys interesting, indeed. Varys thinks that they agree on more than just that. He says that he has great esteem for their new hand, Eddard, and says that you know, both he and Eddard, they both do love King Robert. Yeah, I love this because it's actually kind of directed towards Catelyn to say an oath, right, out loud. Like, oh yes, just like you, we we both do share a love of King Robert, Catelyn. And it says, the text is literally, yes, she was forced to say, for a certainty. <laughs> ah! Catelyn, as you said, looking up the $40, the $40 tab, the like $80 tabs every night. Robert, Robert and Ned were at the strip club <sighs> till 3 a.m. last weekend. Okay, Ned cried for two days afterwards. I don't want to deal with it anymore, Catelyn says. 
But she smiles and she says, yes, for a certainty, we love King Robert. And Littlefinger also adds his little quip. He says, never has a king been so beloved as our Robert. At least in Lord Varys's hearing. Shut up, Littlefinger. <laughs> Shut up. Um, Get a God. job. Get a job. Ah, a different job. Yeah, that's true. I don't even want him having a job. I think he's honestly, at this point, I think it's really a dangerous rhetoric for us to continue saying, get a job, little finger, in this economy, because he is taking jobs away from skilled workers that might not have mm. that opportunity. I think we should not give Littlefinger a job. I think in 2021, Girls Gone Canon should take an official stance, keep him unemployed. <laughs> Don't hire a blacklist little finger. Blacklist little finger. For those of you that have the get a job koozies, I mean, that's vintage now. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> something I noticed during this read. This dance between Catelyn and Littlefinger is very different from the dance that she does with Varys. George does something so artful that he allows us to read between the lines in Varys' tone because Varys is quite obviously populating here and he's like, Hello, I'm Varys, and I'm not going to tell you what I'm actually doing, but I'm just going to keep badgering you with questions, Lady Catelyn, to, you know, just feel you out, smile, powdered weird clammy hands, smile. He's tough, right? He's, he's a tough little egghead to crack, and there's something here that he's kind of suggesting and isn't suggesting things in between his lines, right? Catelyn starts with Littlefinger, treating him with familiarity, but then Varys comes out and lays her into the spider web and traps her. Her attitude changes as she tries to feel out how Varys is kind of dancing with her, and the way he dances is far different. Catelyn regards Peter in that brotherly kind of way and fighting with that idea, but Varys here is trying to comfort her and also saying, while probing for information, that he knows the truth of her adventure. Right? Like, he's straight up like, bitch, I know why you're here, first of all, but you look great while you're doing it, so congrats, honey. And he tells her he knows about her son. Um, That's big news, because not a lot of people know that what happened after, right? Which is where mm -hmm. he then says, ah, your hand. And the polite thing to do would be, what happened to your hand? And move mm -hmm. on. But he threatens to reveal that she's here, right? Because he says... You know, I could send for a salve from Maester Pycelle and really take care of it. And again, he tries to do the same thing about Bran. He's like, you know, I can give you access to better health care than whatever you have up in Winterfell, honey. Just say the word that things are going badly there. We'll hook it up in King's Landing. That would reveal she's here, right? Mm. And But if she says no to that without doing it politely or in the right way, if she didn't say Maester Lewin could do it, a different person would trap themselves into it, right? Because what person would decline? Oh, that's so kind. Uh, so she's kind of caught between this web. And he also keeps reasserting, like, you know, Maester Pycelle has this, and we could do this for you, Catelyn. We could do this. And she has to retort back to him, like, no, Maester Lewin knows what he's doing. Thanks so much for the offer. It's very much like, if you give me the right information, Catelyn, I could make this happen for you, or... We can tell you the truth. We can give you the world. She's just kind of caught between the two of them. Littlefinger, who's kind of massaged her into all of it. And then Varys, who's sitting here like, you poor, helpless thing. Let me spin a narrative for you and find out the mm. truth from you. Absolutely. I, I think that's such a great analysis of what's going on here. You know, there's sort of like, it's, it's a trap, right? Like, if she accepts anything, then suddenly she's beholden to him. And next thing you know, she's 
caught up in his network of being little birds or blackmailed for anything. And so you have a you have a note here about him like being caught in the web of like a spider and I would say also in the way she's a fish caught in a net. Ah, uh, it's yep. It's true. It's very true. Well, as you said, Varys offers to find the healer in the free cities with wondrous healing powers. And as you said, Kat says Lewin knows best. And Catelyn refuses to speak more about Bran because she trusts Littlefinger very little and Varys not at all. You know what? Catelyn is right to trust Lewin because you know what? Bran's awake now as of last <laughs> chapter. Hell yeah. Everything's going well. <laughs> Varys begs her forgiveness for having Baelish drag her here like this. And yes, people should beg forgiveness for Baelish dragging them anywhere. And then very shocks her and asks her, show me the dagger. I love this because he's one move ahead, right? Again, mm. caught in the net, caught in the web. Varys was one move ahead. He knows that she has motives for being there and he's just trying to puzzle out the last few angles to put his story together and put his comprehension of this together, right? So I just love it because he's like, hmm, show me the dagger now. And also, again, it's that kind of that flex of power. We already know. We already know. Now she has to sit there and assume what they know. And he's also feeling out who Catelyn is, right? Because he's mm -hmm. seeing, will she mention the dagger up front? How easy is she to, to bribe? How maneuverable is she, right? And he finds her very difficult. So then he has to use this tact. Yeah. And she does not cave easily. She asks, what have you done with Sir Roderick? Fearing the worst, because again, she knows that Varys knows all. Littlefinger's lost. He's like, who's Roderick? What's this How dagger? dare he not know? How dare What's he not know who Roderick she, is? Shut up, Littlefinger. He acts like he cares about her, but he doesn't even know her master at arms. God. He doesn't even know her BFF. He, uh, Roderick is in her top eight. Okay. But that's <laughs> a millennial Tom. joke, everyone. That's a millennial joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're the uh, youngest beautiful queens. <laughs> we're the villains. Varys tells him Roderick's position as master at arms in Winterfell, and he assures Kat that he's safe. Roderick visited with Aaron in the armory, and they spoke of the dagger, and then they went to drink at the inn Kat and Roderick are staying at, where she will find them waiting for her return. He then adds that Roderick was very distressed of her absence. She asks how he knew all this, and he responds, Through the whisperings of my little birds, of course. Hmm. And again, we're beginning to see those stakes more in Catelyn's chapter, that we are not in Winterfell anymore, right? Like, everything's just like, whoa, everyone knows everything, and, and that perhaps Cat and Nat are just a little bit out of their depth. The way that Varys uses knowledge as a sort of intimidation, as you were saying, right, right, Chloe, it, it's like a show of his power, because Varys is absolutely the embodiment of the idea that knowledge is power. He's brandishing it in a way that I think is very reminiscent of Melisandre, who we saw a lot in our previous POV, and the way that she's using mystery and tricks, right, to make herself seem more impressive, and she's also using knowledge, right, that, that she, only she, can glean from the flames, and I think that's a little similar to what Varys is doing here, right? Perhaps he doesn't really even mind the title of Lord Spider. Maybe he encourages the rumors that he dislikes it because it makes people want to use it more, that which they're forbidden to do. Maybe he even encourages the rumors that he has supernatural abilities because, again, it adds to his allure, it adds to his influence, it adds to his power and the mythos of the spider. And now, retroactively, we've seen some of that continue, right? Like the expanding of Missaria, the white worm, mm. Damon's mistress. 
Uh, that's a name right there to really build weirdness. Like, okay. Misery. I mean, full disclosure. My name on Twitter is Lead Sandworm 2021 Dune, whatever. But. That inspires awe. Wow. Yeah. That, that's, I am just nothing but a little worm. You know, like, it's amazing we record this every week. But Missaria the White Worm. That's a name that you don't, like, immediately think of, right, as, as a good thing. We don't know whether or not that was encouraged to spread. It might have been not encouraged to spread uh, for that same reason. So it kind of reminds me there of Lord Spider, the white worm. You know, Tyana yeah. of the Tower is another one that has that big black reputation and Shira Seastar as well. Yeah, names have power, as we see, right? Or, or Melisandre being called the Red Witch, things like that. Like these, if you um, know how to use it, as we see that Varys does. Actually, it it's the Scarlet powerful. Witch. No, I'm just kidding. Oh my god. <laughs> Marvel, I'm sorry. Here's fifty dollars. Uh, <laughs> so they should pay us. She brings out the dagger and she says, "Perhaps your birds will whisper its owner's name." Clever, very clever, cat. Mm-hmm. Varys runs his thumb on the edge, and blood wells on his thumb, and he drops it with a squeal. Nothing holds an edge like Valyrian steel. Littlefinger says. Littlefinger says, trying to be like, but what about my edginess? I know so many things, because I'm edgy, like the steel. Mm. I will say, despite how much I'm talking up varies here, this is fucking dumb. Who runs their finger along the edge of the knife? Like, even if you are just checking if it's sharp or you're not sure if it's dull or not, that's like the dumbest thing you can do. Don't run your finger along the fucking edge. Like, if you really need to check, use your nail or a piece of paper. You know, that said, not to uh, completely, you know, go against you here, but it does remind me of a lot of those kind of tests in fantasy mythos of, like, to go further in a quest, you have to make yourself bleed because the blood is magical to get you through the next thing or whatever. Oh, sure. Also, not that here, but, like, in a way, he's weakening himself in front of Catelyn to mm. prove to her that he like I mean it's a blood oath right like this is like he he cut his finger to prove to her like oh a dagger I didn't realize how sharp that was gonna be and little fingers like oh that's Valyrian steel you guys how did you not realize that Varys knows what Valyrian steel looks like so why would he do that it was yeah. purposeful if you bleed in front of someone you're weakened in front of them it's vulnerability yeah it, it is absolutely an act and as we know Varys is all about putting on acts but I, yeah. if he did if it weren't an act right i feel like you dumbass yeah i wonder if it's that supposed to if that's supposed to be the angle especially because little yeah. seems to be playing like the knowledge here and Varys is playing dumb everything he's doing is like oh how's your son you know he's doing typical like small talk coded things you know that you'd get between some people that haven't seen each other and their kids in a while where mm. Littlefinger is kind of stoking the fire in the longer way, adding the exposition in the other hand, like, oh, that's a Valyrian steel dagger you have there. Oh, Bran was killed by an assassin, or, you know, like, just like, he's adding Attempted, the long yeah. form, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's a great point, that Varys is trying to make himself seem weaker here, because yeah. he's bouncing it out, right? He did his show of power, but then he's uh, he doesn't want to seem too untrustworthy so then he brings it back with that mm-hmm. well someone else who's trying to I guess put on their own show of power I guess is Littlefinger he flips the knife in the air catches it with the other hand he tells Catelyn 
if you want to know the owner, you should just come to me. Because he's like, it's my knife. Again, nothing holds an edge like me, Littlefinger. Burying and- the lead again. <laughs> <laughs> There's this point also in this moment where Littlefinger, like, throws the dagger across the room, like, over his shoulder or something. Like, <laughs> throws the dagger across the room. And I'm like, oh, so Littlefinger is the weeb who practiced the Naruto, like, ninja throws this whole time, <laughs> thinking, like, mm, yeah, I'm gonna throw knives across the room, that's gonna get Catelyn so wet. And he's, like, totally thinking that this move is gonna work for him right now, and Catelyn's just like, alright, so who tried to kill my son then? If it's your knife? And he's like, look at that, Catelyn, look at that. Listen, the only knife play that really works well tonally is Asha Greyjoy, and it always will be. Mm. Sorry, Littlefinger. You'll get upstage in a book. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Until the Tony and Prince. Get it. Oh, yeah. Ash can get it all day long. Fred, from anyone. <laughs> Until the Tony on Prince Joffrey's name day, Littlefinger was the owner, again, buried the lead. Peter backed Jamie in the joust and Loris Tyrell unhorsed him, he says. Many of them became much poorer. The queen lost an emerald and he his knife. The queen retrieved her emerald eventually, but the knife was never returned. The winner kept the rest. Yeah, it's a great detail here that I actually really like. I don't know if Cersei actually deigns to gamble or not on in these tourneys. Maybe she does if it's Jamie, But it's something that's thrown into this like little story that they're weaving together to sort of stir the pot of how Cersei's personality is being built throughout this book until we finally actually come face to face with her in Ned's chapter in The Godswood. But perhaps it is to try to get Catelyn to maybe believe the story better, right, by preying on her preconceived notions of Cersei and her pride, that, like, of everyone who lost something during that day, Cersei's the only one who got her emerald back. That's a really big sign. Every single thing being laid here is to instigate against the Lannisters from Littlefinger. Mm. Very mm-hmm. much so. And we'll talk about it in a moment as we get to this end here, because the end of the chapter is who, Catelyn demanded, her mouth dry with fear, her fingers ached with remembered pain. The imp, said Littlefinger, as the Lord Varys watched her face. Tyrion Lannister. You fucker. <laughs> Alright, hysterical, because Tyrion finally got Valyrian steel before Tywin, first of all. <laughs> got him! Um, <laughs> but, and lost, got and lost it before Tywin. Right. Uh, but that said, this is a lie. We are rereading these books. This is a lie. We know that this is a lie. Uh, we know Varys is actually covering this lie up. Uh, Tyrion would never bet against his brother, and both of these men are covering that up. They both know the truth about this. Like, there's no way Varys doesn't know the truth of what happened with money changing hands and swords and daggers and jewels cha- changing hands. Uh, they both are instigating their ideas to push war between Lannister and Stark with different agendas, right? Varys is pushing for his Targaryen master plan. Littlefinger is pushing his agenda to sow chaos, get back at Catelyn, slash get Catelyn back, slash get her daughter, slash get her daughter back. Ruin House Stark, right? Like for literary cuckolding, I guess, uh, and all the embarrassment. But who knows? Truly, the man is an enigma, a mystery. We may never know what he's out for. But it's like a Tootsie Roll pop. Exactly. You never know what you're going to get on the inside. One, two, three. <sighs> These lies are not only about instigating the war, but also 
there's a problem because if they tell the truth for whose dagger this is, that's treason. Because mm. it's Robert's. We learned that later from Tyrion. It changed hands to Robert in A Clash of Kings, not to Tyrion, who lost it, which is how, of course, Joffrey is able to send it from, you know, it's in the armory that came along with them. <sighs> yes. That dagger changed hands. I recall it now. Robert showed it to me that night at the feast. His grace loved to salt my wounds, especially when drunk. In Eddard IV's next chapter, Littlefinger plays with him in the absolute opposite way of all this, right? He says, Oh, most likely the king didn't know. It wouldn't be the first time our good Robert has practiced at closing his eyes to things he wouldn't rather see. So with Catelyn, he removes it from the story. There is no Robert in the story that he's using to help instigate all of this. But with Eddard, he completely knows that Robert is the button to push for him. What makes the mystery of the cat's paw dagger interesting isn't who sent the dagger, it's why Littlefinger lies about the dagger. It's complete happenstance and luck for Littlefinger that Cat ends up coming across the named Lannister Tyrion in this on the road, right? Like, had she not come across him, life would have gone on, she would have moved on, maybe everyone would be living and happy, we don't know, maybe not, probably not, but... It's happenstance that this happens. Like, Littlefinger didn't play on that part. It's just his inflaming constantly of pushing the Lannister, 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 Queen bad, Tyrion bad, Lannister. Finally paid off in a great way for him in clever luck. And it happens again for Ned and Varys, right? Because Varys tells Ned, Sir Hugh was murdered by the Lannisters. And we accept that. But I'm going to be real with you. Gregor just kills people all the time. Like, for fun. Yeah. He kills and assaults people all the time for fun. If you look at him the wrong way, he'll kill you uh, without reason. It is so much more likely that Gregor just killed the guy because that's what he does than, I mean, I'm sorry, but there's not much controlling that guy. He does what he wants. Yeah, he just like, he like kills the horse for no goddamn reason. You know, he's just like, yeah. mm, I'm over this. And yeah, that's what he does. And I think that there's other parts of the cat's paw dagger that are interesting in regards to how it flushes out Joffrey's character later on. Um, but, but absolutely regarding, you know, why does Littlefinger lie about it and how effective it is? And as you said, the way that it plays on both Catelyn and Ned's preconceived ideas of the world. And I've heard before this question brought up a couple of times, right? Because why does Varys go along with this, right? Because surely Varys does know who the dagger actually belongs to. As you said, it's not something he would forget. So why does he permit Littlefinger to get away with this lie? And I mean, the answer is the plot. Again, that's that's <laughs> a big part of Catelyn's early chapters. The plot is the reason things happen. But the fact that Varys chooses not to correct Peter it's part of this strange like act that they've got going on here. We know that they aren't actually working together in many ways, right? They both have their own ends, but here for like a brief moment, they're, they're both kind of aligned and Varys needs to go along with what Littlefinger says. And in a way they're sort of like casting this spell on Catelyn, right? Trying to, trying to, as you said, catch her in their net. And people constantly ask, why would Catelyn trust Peter? And for what it's worth, after the show that Varys puts on about knowing everything and, and impressing Catelyn, that 
Varys doesn't dispute Littlefinger's version of the events of that tourney and to whom the dagger belongs actually ends up, I think, lending Littlefinger's lie more credence. Yeah, it's very interesting because I don't think that, I mean, I was just discussing this with my partner that I don't think Littlefinger and Varys will probably ever see each other again at this point in the story. Um, I think Littlefinger will die in the north be buried by the snows, and I don't know that Varys is going to make it there. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll reunite at some point. But it is nice to see them parallel in the story, both working towards different ends, but kind of being fine grinding next to each other because they have bigger opponents. You know, they're like, I have bosses to deal with. I'll come back to you, Peter. And if you're still kicking, then good. Let's fight it out. If not... And part of me always likes that idea of like... Like, I'm, I'm not into the the tourney theory for Sansa, you know, of she's been with all the guys in order. I think it's clever, the Ashford tourney theory that Sansa has been with the dude or is going to be with slash married to each of the guys. And the last is Aegon. I know a lot of people took that to either mean fake Aegon or Jon Snow Aegon, whatever you want to go with. I'm not into that theory personally. I used to, I, I like it for, for, for platonic cute Johns in this, but I'm not a John's a person per se, but I just like their friendship and the the bad show, personally. But I don't know. I don't think they're going to come back together. Various and Littlefinger. I will. Say, I I like the idea that. Uh, so to address both of what you said, I believe Butterfly Right from Asoff University was the originator of the Ashford Tourney theory, and Butterfly has also stated that. The point of the theory was to point out that, like, this might be the course that, like, Sansa's story goes, but it's not mm-hmm. about who Sansa ends up with, right? Yeah. Butterfly said it's not, like, Sansa ends up with a Targaryen at the end. It's just these might be the different suitors. Because, as we know from that, we don't actually know from the Ashford tourney yeah. that the Lady Ashford ends up with any of the suitors. They're just suitors. And, exactly. and that's how I feel about that. Um, I feel similarly to that. And regarding... Littlefinger and Varys, I I think it'd be interesting. I agree. They don't necessarily even need to meet. Even if they don't meet, they're meeting on the battlefield. On the physical plane. They are, though. They are. Like, they're chess pieces, right? They are still battling one another from afar, even if they never see each other in person. And maybe that's more intimate for some people, like them. Yeah, and there is something interesting about the pattern of Varys' appearance in the story. Like, he appears, we first hear of him in Eddard 2. And I didn't really think about this, but he sent a rider to Ned and Robert with the report of Daenerys' wedding to Cal Drogo. Oh, that's some instigator fucking bullshit, because immediately Ned and Robert got tense over it. Mm-hmm. It's Varys that did that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get this chapter, right? Catelyn 4, we get his on-page introduction, Lord Varys knows all. Peter says that Varys knows Peter is friends with Liza, is another pointed thing. So it's obvious, like, they know each other's shit, they're just not acting on it. Varys then introduces himself to Eddard in the council meeting, plays the listening, attentive, informative man to him. Uh, he tells him about Lord Stannis leaving and Sir Barristan riding with the king, and Varys says... Our good King Robert has many cares. He entrusts some small matters to us to lighten the load. So that's his nice way of saying, Robert, don't do shit. Later, he comes back with Catelyn in that chapter, right? And Catelyn says of Varys to Ned, Ned says, does the eunuch know all of it? And she goes, not from my lips, uh, but we know he will know all of it. 
great. We, we know. He's pretty good. In Eddard 5, Varys shows back up as a character, right? Uh, Eddard is, like, talking to Littlefinger, and Littlefinger's like, Hey, see that guy? That's Varys' guy. See that guy? That's Varys' guy, too. I am so trustworthy, Ned. It's Catelyn's fault you died, though, and Sansa's. Bye. Um, and Eddard 5, Peter also is like, Here's all this info for free. Good luck with it, Ed. Edward Seven, Varys comes to him and is like, your friend's doomed. Save the realm. Save the cheerleader. Save the world. Uh, and then over Edward Twelve, Edward Fourteen, he comes in and out and gives some important news of comings and goings. But then he shows up in Sansa Five at the council where he manipulates with Cersei with Littlefinger to have Sansa send the letter declaring her father a traitor. Eddard 15, he of course comes to Ned, tells Ned to sacrifice himself for his kid, for the realm. You know, it was theoretical at first, but then it became real. Oops. Like his honor, yeah, just like, like take the fall. <laughs> yeah, Go to the north. Take the fall. Uh, and he is, we do see, as you and I discussed a bit ago, he's in the Arya chapter, uh, which, you know, we noticed that he and, of course, Illyrio are chatting and saying, if one hand could disappear, why not another? So... He was obviously plotting for something for Ned, but in Arya 5, he is genuinely upset. Uh, the crowd roared. Arya felt the statue of Baylor rock as they surged against it. The high septon clutched at the king's cape, and Varys came rushing over, waving his arms. And even the queen was saying something to him, but Joffrey shook his head. Uh, I mean, Varys went over waving his arms, right? Saying, no, 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 do not kill him. Do not kill him. This is not That's in the my master new hire. plan. Yeah, this is not <laughs> master plan shit. This is not how I put the Targaryens in power. I need this fool. So it, it, after that, we finally get him in Tyrion's plot, but we do not get him out of a Stark chapter until the end of Aegot. He is fucking around with the Starks through Aegot, all of them. Because he's trying to court Ned, right? He He's trying to woo Ned into his side. Not, <laughs> no, and, like, in and, a way, yeah. I know what yeah, you mean. Yeah, no, I, I mean that. Like, trying to court Ned as, again, new job applicant. He's like, oh my god, Joffrey, don't kill, don't kill him. I'm about to, like, send the offer letter. And, I mean, obviously that goes awry. And I do think that plays a big role in why, at, in A Storm of Swords, Varys and Jamie work together to free Tyrion, because... Varys is like, I learned my lesson last time. We are not taking risks. We are going to jailbreak my new candidate before he gets to the point where he might be executed. We're not We're not taking the risk that he could be executed. <laughs> no, I legitimately yeah. think that. I think so, That's too. learning from your mistakes. That's wisdom. <laughs> with cleverness. Yeah, I think Littlefinger could really do with paying attention to Varys' wisdom and cleverness. I mean, he does, right? He does pay attention. It's just like... In a different way, for different reasons. Sporadically and with his hormones. Yeah. So. Cap 4. It's a loaded one. That was a loaded chapter. It is. A loaded it reveals so much. Chekhov's dagger. Oh. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I look forward. We're looking forward. We have the veil soon. You know, we have the inn oh, yeah. next week. So much and happens. then we have the inn at the crossroads is next week. I don't. That's one of the most iconic moments. I'm excited. It is. And I mean, Kat goes so many places in this one book, right? And yeah. you were talking about this when we started the Cat chapters, that she goes the most places. And like, she really just makes it all around. Yeah, Arya and Kat actually pretty much, uh, beyond Daenerys, obviously, 
as the other obvious choice, but Daenerys, Arya, and Kat do the most traveling, I would say. Yeah. She's well traveled. Get those frequent, I don't know. I mean, Daenerys goes through everywhere in book one, and it's real quick. And again, the same as how Catalan chapters are kind of succinct to the point, all of these chapters kind of are in the beginning. They're to the point, tell you what they need to know, and George really condenses the details of like, Daenerys casually traveling through the forest of Cohort in two lines. Yeah. You know, and he uh, does that here with Kat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all of a sudden, here we are, boom, and now we're here, boom, and now we're back at the inn. And I do like that in Aegon. I think it keeps things moving along and the story moving along. I think that's really important because you need to draw the readers into the first book if you're going to write 18 books. I mean, 18, you say 18, I say 21. You know. (laughs) (laughs) My god. (sighs) Well, that's Catelyn 4. You know, we, again, are still here in King's Landing, haven't made it to all those other places yet, but we hope that you will join us as we go around Westeros with Catelyn. If you want to let us know any of your thoughts that we might get to next week, you can let us know on social media at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter, or shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, and don't forget to subscribe to us on a platform where you listen to podcasts. We are everywhere. Spotify, Google+, Apple, you know, iTunes, those podcasts, Amazon, Audible, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, you name it, you'll find us there or at Podbean where we're hosted. Yes. And of course, we do have a Patreon where if you subscribe to that, you can also get access to our Patreon feed where all of those episodes are, as well as special episodes for patrons $5 and up, the stranger tier and above. This month, we are doing an episode again on the His Dark Materials missing episode that we lost due to COVID. And next month, we are going to be coming back with an A Song of Ice and Fire episode. Yes, be sure to stay tuned for that. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. See you next week. They can't yes, see but us. but not the last week of April. I don't know why I always say that. They can't see us, Eliana. Not with that attitude. <sighs> not with that. It's like berries and Littlefinger. They see each other's hearts from afar but on the they? battlefield. Do they, though? Maybe. I, I don't know. Goodbye. Bye.